So if your life was a movie, would the description of it in Netflix, if you were scrolling through things, would the description of your life, the story of your life on Netflix be interesting enough for someone to say, yeah, I want to watch that? Donald Miller has written, uh, and he's got a book called, I think it's called Storyline, that he tries to help you to see the story that God is telling through your life. Uh, And he asked that question. He said, if your life was a movie, would anybody want to watch it? And there are times when we step back and we ask ourselves, yeah, what what is the story of my life? Is the story of my life exciting uh, or is it depressing? Because the story that we think we're living has a huge impact on how we feel. Uh, It has a huge impact on what we think we should do and not do. And if we're living a part in a good story, then we'll feel good. If we feel like we're living in a tragedy, we'll tend to get depressed uh, and we're prone to give up and kind of medicate our way out of life. Uh, using drugs, alcohol, but even just like career. We just put our head down and sort of go through the motions. And the Bible is, from beginning to end, a story. It's a story. It's a story of, about the world. It's about God. It's about us. And the, the story the Bible's telling tells it in a way that wants to scoop all of us up and make us characters in its story. The story the Bible is telling gives us the opportunity, it invites us to say, wait, you know what, I think this could be the story that I'm living. And so when we live into the Bible story, it gives our lives meaning, it gives our lives purpose, and it also doesn't just benefit our lives, but it gives us a story that we can then use to help others. Last week, we saw that the story of the Bible has this incredible beginning. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we see that life was made beautiful. It was incredible. The glory of God was revealed throughout creation as the creator himself was on display as someone who is delightful to know and the kind of person that you want to love. That God made amazing life, a life full of joy and delight, of exploration with the best kind of satisfying work that is truly and deeply meaningful. And the story the Bible tells in the first two chapters of Genesis is also a story about community, relationships with God, with others, where we are known and we are loved, where God is a God of yes, where God is a God of celebration, where God esteems us highly and gives us incredibly meaningful work and significance to that work. And as you see this story, as you understand that this is how the story begins, it drives you to delight. It drives you to celebrate everywhere you see these things in life out there and in your own life. So that's how the story begins. But, but, In the Bible, the story of humanity turns from this glorious beginning. In the telling of the story, there's this awful record scratch. As the symphony is playing, there's this scraping across 
uh, it's like when the microphone gets too close to the speaker, this, this ringing, screeching f- uh, frequency feedback loop happens, and the story turns bad. And I think this happens in our lives too, doesn't it? Our lives, the story of our life turns bad. It happens to the people that we are parenting. It happens to the people that we are discipling. Right? When you think about the people that we're trying to help grow spiritually, that's what discipleship is. And parenting and discipleship are really just two parts of the same big picture where we're trying to help other people grow. We're trying to help them walk with God and know God and and experience his blessings. The lives of the people that we care about, that we lead, that we're influencing, their lives turn bad too. And the story in the Bible turns because another voice enters in. And we're going to see this today in Genesis 3 as we start reading. We're going to start in Genesis uh, 3 verse 1. So friends, this is God's word. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so this other voice was crafty. This other voice came in, and this voice questioned God's goodness. The voice found the one limitation and exploited it. It took the one place where God said, not yet, Because he wasn't saying no, he was saying not yet to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it took that one place where God said not yet, and it built a whole case saying, like, how dare God not give you freedom? How dare God hold back anything from you? Why doesn't he want you to be like him? This sounds like oppression to me. This voice took what God said and lied about it to paint the worst possible picture of God. Try to paint God in the worst possible light. We hear this voice, don't we? Don't we hear the same voice? I mean, did God really say that you have to suffer for him? I mean, that seems kind of mean, doesn't it? Does God really expect that you have to live that much differently from the people around you if you're a Christian? That seems unfair. Why would God do that? Is God sadistic? Does God have it out for you? Is God just a killjoy? He wants you to suffer now, so maybe he'll bless you in the future, maybe? I mean, we hear this voice. Our kids hear this voice. The people that we are discipling hear this voice. And as I watch this conversation unfold between the serpent and the woman in the garden, like my heart tenses up. There are times when I try to slow myself down and imagine that I'm there. And when I do that with this story, I'm like, don't, wait, wait, stop. Don't do it. Like, he's lying to you. 
He's lying like, like, no. I mean, it's painful. Like there's angst. This happens to me sometimes when I'm watching TV. I'm like, oh God, like don't do this. Like don't you, oh, you know, it's just, and, and when I read this, sometimes I'm like, I don't know, you ever do this? Maybe this time the story won't turn out the way it did the last time you read it. Maybe this time, on the Jesus movies, I always think that way. Like, oh, it just seems like it's going so well. Maybe it won't turn, right? Like, maybe Eve won't give in this time. Maybe Adam will show up and, like, crush his head or something like that. You know, um, and this isn't just a conflict about the fruit, right? What was going on was much more significant. You know, Adam and Eve are being tempted to actually turn their back on God. The serpent is telling them a different story, right? It's a different story about what God is like. It's a different story about them, a different story about what's best for them. The serpent is setting itself up as an alternative to God with an alternative truth and an alternative story. And so this isn't just, hey, break the rule that God has set. It's God isn't good, God is not. He, God is keeping you from being the person that you really are. That there's this sense of who you are, and that needs to come out. That's real liberation. That's real freedom. But God is keeping you from that. I mean, this is the gospel of our culture today. And this voice comes to us and says, you know what? You're actually, if you follow God, you're just a pawn in some wicked ego game that God is playing with the world. And in this, the temptation is to put yourself above God. That what you want is more important than what God wants. Do what you want. Do what's best for you. Don't worry about what God wants. And so, again, this is a temptation to turn your back on God and to leave him. And verse 6 tells us what happens next. It says, So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And as they do this, they are leaving God. We normally don't see our sin this way. Normally we just think, oh, no, 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 I was just in the moment, I, you know, I, I, I just snapped. Well, what happens? Verse 7 tells us. It says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the result is nakedness. But nakedness is, it's... A metaphor. I mean, it's true and it's a metaphor, right? It's, so I don't know if there's another name for that, but it's, it's both reality and it's a picture of something bigger because the nakedness is about exposure. It's about guilt and shame. Even the intimacy of marriage is compromised. The two know what they've done and they are so ashamed that they have to hide now from each other. Even as husband and wife, they're now ashamed to be seen by each other. And so they have to make clothing. So intimacy and vulnerability are lost. 
the one flesh unity of marriage is now torn asunder and shame has entered in. This is what happens to us, isn't it, when we do things that we shouldn't? And our solution, the solution that we come up with, is to separate. Our solution is to hide ourselves, or at least parts of ourselves. And isn't this what our kids do too? This is where lying comes from. It's an effort for us to hide what we've done so that we don't have to be vulnerable or intimate in terms of who we really are. And so that's our solution, but God's solution is totally different. God has a completely different method of dealing with failure. And we're going to see how God responds. And it's really, it's a blueprint for discipleship. How God responds should inform how we respond as parents or how we respond as people that are trying to be friends to other people, uh, trying to be encouraging, how we try to disciple other people. So verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And in these verses, we see the beginning of how God responds. And again, like I said, it's a blueprint for us. The first thing that God does is God comes. God comes. God came down. And of course he did, right? God will not leave us or forsake us. Even when we fail. Even when we completely blow it, God comes. And God didn't just come, but second, God talks. God talks. He called and he asked, Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? Oh, man. I mean, this is big. Because God could have come with condemnation and immediate judgment. He knew everything. Right? He had all the data. But he called and then he asked because that's what you do when you love someone. You don't condemn, but you talk in a way that moves toward reconciliation. I mean, the conversation is as important as the facts. And the way that God talks, the way that God asks, is he is giving Adam and Eve, he's giving them an opportunity to come clean. 
He's giving them an opportunity to show in their response that they care about what they've done. He's given them an opportunity to say, look, even though you've turned back and you've turned away from me, will you come back? Are you willing to own what you've done? I'm going to ask you and give you an opportunity. I'm not going to come with a condemning voice. I'm going to come asking to see if you're willing to own what you've done and to try to make things right. And what adds to the tragedy is that their response is not good. Their response is to play the blame game. It wasn't my fault. The man blames the woman. Um, he also blames God, right? The woman you gave to be with me. The woman then blames the serpent. And no one confesses what they did. And because of this, reconciliation is impossible. Because to reconcile, you need forgiveness and trust. And I might let you go. I might not punish you for what you've done. But how can I trust you ever again if you aren't willing to acknowledge what you've done? If you're not willing to own what you've done, then how do I know that you're not going to do it to me again? And so without confession, reconciliation is impossible. And the separation actually grows and becomes worse. So when your kids or when someone that you care about doesn't take responsibility, it might be appropriate to tell them a story. It might be appropriate to tell them the story of Adam and Eve to be able to say, you know, the way you're responding feels to me a little bit like the way Adam and Eve responded to God in the garden. Is that really how you want to respond? Do you really want to further separate yourself from me? I mean, I know it's hard, but wouldn't you rather be honest and bring what you've done into the light so that we could work together? I'm not going to condemn you. There is love and grace. There is forgiveness available. Can we talk about this and work on this together? And depending on how old your kids are, um, the younger your kids are, the more this is a teaching moment rather than a questioning moment. Asking your kids questions when they're too young sometimes isn't as wise because they don't know enough to know how to respond. And so um, young kids need to be taught before they're mature enough, right, to know how to respond to questions like these. But as they get older, it, it, it is more of a conversation, not because you're trying to trap them. I know that I'm guilty of this. It feels like the sort of, you know, the defense attorney, the cross-examination, it's like, you know, asking questions and everything you say can and will be used against you later in this conversation, Right. <laughs> Like, that's not what we're talking about. Um, And so your general relationship with your kids is going to have an impact on their willingness to come clean or their willingness to even answer your questions. Um, And so, but there's a conversation that you want to have take place because, again, God's desire is that we would come clean, not because he forces us to, but because we love him so much that we don't want to be separated from him. And that's a big deal. Because it's challenging, especially with parenting. Because sometimes you just want to force your kids to do the right thing because it'll be bad if they don't. 
And yet, as they get older, you need to let more and more of those decisions be made by them and have to allow them to live with the consequences if they don't choose to do what you think is best for them. Oh, man, that's hard. So, so God comes and God talks. Then the third thing that God does is God gives truth. God gives truth. God is honest about the curse that results from what they have done. Now, you need to understand this is not vindictive on God's part. These are the consequences of Adam and Eve abandoning their relationship with God. God told them in Genesis 2 that on the day that they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. And he was telling the truth. When you cut yourself off from God, you begin to lose everything that God is. So you lose his love, you lose his peace, you lose his joy, you lose his power. Ultimately, you lose his life-giving spirit. And since he's deposited a measure of this in us because we're made in his image, this death is gradual. It's gradual. It's like, it's like when your phone, when you unplug your phone in the morning and the battery just begins to discharge. That loss of these things happens over time. But God is clear in these verses that it does happen and there are clear consequences. Let's look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so work is cursed. It is relentlessly frustrated. When you worship creation rather than the creator, life is frustrating. And worshiping creation before the creator produces a life that will never satisfy. Relationships will never lastingly satisfy if you put them ahead of God. Career accomplishments will never lastingly satisfy if you put them ahead of your relationship with God. Drugs, sex, the approval of other people in your life, the need that you have to be affirmed by others will never lastingly satisfy if you put those things ahead of God. This is the pain and the frustration that plagues everything. And there's pain in childbearing, right? The woman's work, this is not the exclusive sum of the woman's work, but her work is also frustrated and painful. And it shows that this curse is being passed on to the next generation, that parents' sins affect their children. And I I hate this. I'm so bummed when I see this in my own life. I get upset with one of the kids and then I think, oh, dang, 
They got this from me. <laughs> like they learned this by watching me do this. Um, and this is the reality of life. And again, God is not being vindictive here. He's saying, when you disconnect from me, this is the result. Life is frustrating and it's broken and it's painful. He zooms in on relationships, the conflict and the marriage. He says, your desire will be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. So she won't want what he wants and he will oppress her. And so this plagues marriages and dating. And it, you can see the connection here because when we walk away from loving God, when we walk away from respecting his authority, we're going to struggle to love others and to respect their authority. And so these are ways that God gives us the truth of the consequences of what will happen. Right? God gives us truth and we need to give truth as well. We need to help the people that we care about, our kids and the people that we disciple also to understand what the consequences are of things that they've done or things that they are considering doing or what they're tempted by. And so God gives truth, but then fourth, he also gives grace. We see that God also gives grace. And this is in verse 14. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what we see here is that God knows exactly what happened and God targets the ultimate source. God is not unaware of who really began this whole process and he's holding everybody appropriately accountable. And God says to the serpent, you set out the woman to be your ally and I'm going to disrupt that. You will not have control over her. I'll create conflict between you and her, between her offspring and your offspring. Now, there's so much that can be said about this. Uh, these verses begin one of the most important themes that spans the entire Bible. Verse 15 is a promise from God. The seed of the woman will destroy the seed of the serpent. Bruising his head is a death blow. And in doing this, though, the seed of the woman will also be struck with a blow to his heel. And if you trace this theme, again, throughout the whole Bible, it shows up over and over and over again, the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But the climax of this theme is in the work of Jesus. Because Jesus came down to do battle and to wage war against the serpent. And in the battle, Jesus himself suffered. Jesus' heel was bruised on the cross. But in the resurrection, Jesus dealt a death blow to the devil and he destroyed the power of death. In the garden, God said, on the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. In the gospel, God says, in the day that you eat of the tree, I will surely die. Because in verse 15, God promises that he will rescue 
humanity from the curse and from the treachery of the devil. In this verse, in this promise, we see that God is willing to do anything, including offer himself, so that we might be set free. And this is the gospel for us. This is how we see the gospel. This is the grace of God because we don't deserve it. We, like Adam and Eve, have no one to blame for our part, complicit in our sin. But God's response is both truth and grace. And so this is a blueprint for discipleship. This is how God disciplines us. He comes, he talks, he gives truth, and he gives grace. It's a blueprint for us, for our kids, and for the people that we disciple. We come, like we show up. We don't abandon, we don't physically leave, we don't passive-aggressively make someone suffer at arm's length while we torture them with our lack of affection. Um, as we hold back for them to do some kind of penance, we come and we talk. We invite conversation heading toward reconciliation. And then we give truth. We're honest about the fall. We're honest about the failure. We don't mince words and we are honest about the impact and the consequences. But then we also give grace. We also give grace. We share hope. We share forgiveness. And if you haven't gotten this from God, it's almost impossible to give it to someone else. And so we need to be the characters in this story first so that we can become people who can disciple others in the way that God disciples us. And so to you parents and to those of you who are trying to make disciples, which hopefully is all of us, right? All of us should be doing some part to try to help the people that we know and love to know the love of God and to understand the grace of Jesus. But so to you, please don't let the fall, right, when it shows up in your life, when it shows up in your kids' life or your disciples' lives, don't let the fall kill your joy or your hope in God. Like, don't be surprised. This is reality that we live in. Okay, so don't be surprised by this when it happens. Um, second, like, know that what you do matters. The way that you respond, especially as a Christian, especially as a parent, but as, so as a parent, like our kids end up thinking that God is like us. You know, when they, as they grow up, they just assume that God is like the authority that's over them. And so how you respond matters. The way that you respond makes all the difference in the world. And this, there's some pressure here, right? There's some pressure here because we're fallen people. Like as parents, we're fallen. And so how in the world do we image God and the way that God responds? Well, we need a lot of grace, <laughs> you know? We need truth so that we can be shown how we're supposed to respond. And we need God in our lives to love us so that we can love our kids in that way. But your response to the failures of your kids, your response to the failures of people that you're discipling has the chance, like you have the chance to communicate to them how God feels. 
you have the chance to communicate to them that God knows and still loves them. God knows and still likes them. And God will be with them in all of the consequences. And he will give them grace upon grace upon grace. And so what you do matters. And then I guess just the last thing I'd want you to remember is that as you acknowledge the fall and you're not surprised by it, as you acknowledge the fall and you make efforts to respond to it, just remember that the fall isn't the beginning of the story and it's also not the end. So it's not the beginning. It wasn't God's design. God didn't want us to be this way. He didn't want us to act in these ways. He had something far more grand and glorious for us, but we've fallen from that. But then it's not the end either. That Jesus' resurrection shows us that there's grace in our failures, there's hope in the present, and there is a glorious future for those who come back to him. Let's pray. God, thank you for coming, for coming. Jesus, thank you for being the God who comes and who talks, for being the God who reveals grace and truth. Fill us again with your grace. Thank you that where we should have surely died, you've stepped into our place and offered yourself so that we might live. Help us, help us, Jesus, to stay close to you and then show us how we can love others in the way that you have loved us. Help us to come and to talk and to share grace and truth with others. And for those that are here and don't know you yet, would you touch them with your truth and grace so that they might find forgiveness today? We pray this in your name, amen. We're going to receive our offering here in just a minute. And so if you're going to give today, please prepare your gifts. Um, If you want to give online, you can do that. You can text to give the instructions on the screens.